0: No more to sap, go at or hat to a summer, some Buddha sa. No more to sap, go Once again, this evening, I'd like to address some of these questions that have been sent in. And the first one is asking if I would speak about powerful negative emotions. Well, the situation pretty much most of the whole planet is in at the moment is one of being under very intense pressure and when we're under pressure aspects of our being that we perhaps uh, weren't always aware of mm, readily come to the surface. It doesn't take a global pandemic to bring this about, it's uh, anybody who's been on a meditation retreat where mm, not talking, not eating in the evening, long periods of sitting still and mm, under pressure and then all sorts of old stuff comes to the surface and where did that come from? Mm how come I'm still dealing with this after all these years of practice? It happens. Or if you've been in some other situation like long-haul flights, you're cramped up in an aeroplane for 12 hours or more on end and don't want to be there, and it can create a lot of disturbance and... And probably the reason so many people drink so much booze and eat so much and is a way of somehow distracting themselves from what is what is appearing in awareness that's I think that that's an important way of considering the situation that when we 're under pressure aspects of our character that we Perhaps, and pushed into unawareness at a different stage of life when we maybe didn't feel ready or able to really live through it surfaces, and if this is the case, and I suspect for many people it is this is this is the time to receive it. this old, unreceived life is ready now to be received. I mean, we don't have to see unreasonable, extreme, negative emotions as some sort of a failure. We might be seeing it that way. I had a phone call this afternoon from a long-time good friend of the monastery and and she had found out that her daughter has contracted the COVID-19 virus. and. She's at home with her partner and her young daughter, and she's a woman with a high-powered professional job, and, and now she's under lockdown at home and mm, under risk of serious illness. And, and this friend was commenting on how, how difficult it was to come to terms with her reaction of anger. She can't go to help her daughter or her granddaughter. And she was puzzled after all these years of practice, how come I've got so much anger, rage, waking up at night disturbed? And she was mentioning to me how she'd been trying to sit meditation and trying to calm her mind. And I suggested, well, sitting meditation, that's about the last thing you want to do, you know? She's fortunate enough to have a garden at the back and say, so Go walking, move. And the nervous system has to now somehow receive all this energy that's being released. It's not as if this person had been doing anything wrong. It's not as if there's any rational reason for feeling angry. She knows well enough that getting enraged doesn't help. So, where's the anger coming from? Well, it's the same as I've spoken before. I would suggest somebody we know who's perhaps old and sick and approaching death and we know what's going to happen and and then they die and then there's all this outpouring of grief. What was that about? I knew it was going to happen. Well, it's a trigger. It can be a trigger. Uh, Even an expected death like that can trigger the perception, the memory of all the moments when there was loss and we didn't really receive it. We didn't really live through it. And so here it is. Now all those old moments of unreceived life are ready to be received. And if we have prepared ourselves and if we understand in this way, maybe we can become freed from that old, unreceived pain, that old, unreceived life. Now, it's true that for some people there's real, immediate suffering, being ill and immediate, present loss and pain. However, for many people that's not the case. It's, It's arising out of the state of unawareness. We didn't realise, we didn't know that it was there. Sadly, for a lot of folk, it's not until they're at the point of dying and their capacity for avoiding their unlived life is diminished and it all surfaces. And you find for a good number of people, very... Sadly, at the end of their life, to become very bitter and, and afraid of all the heedless things they've done and the experiences they, they haven't really taken responsibility for. They didn't know. But they didn't know they didn't know. Well, now, we didn't know that this pandemic was about to happen. It did happen. And now it's an opportunity to see what can we learn from these intense negative emotions. Yeah. Classically, uh, Theravada Buddhist teachings would talk about negative emotions as Kilesa. And we could be thinking about how I shouldn't be having Kilesas, the Kilesas are bad, and maybe we can study the Abhidhamma and learn about dosa mula jitters and have a conceptual understanding of, of what's going on in, in consciousness and we experience as negative emotions. All of that's got its place. However, when it really comes to being enraged, sweating with red-hot rage, what do we do with that? Do we have what it takes to meet it. Or maybe it's it's cold terror, dread that we're needing to meet, handle. Actually speaking with somebody else earlier today also was very challenged by intense feelings of loneliness. Mm. An idea that we're suffering from our doesn't take us very far. We need a whole different set of skills, an embodied level of awareness, which means that we can meet ourselves where we find ourselves with all this pain that surfaced. If it's surfacing because of something that's happening immediately in front of us or if it's surfacing because it's old, unreceived life, the challenge is really the same. Do we have the open heartedness? Do we have the strength and the groundedness of here and now embodied awareness to receive it? Because if we don't the only other option is we distract ourselves from it and we push it down further into unawareness and And then again, maybe it's not until much later on in life that it surfaces and we have to deal with it. So a lot of these negative emotions, instead of just labelling them as kilesas and perhaps judging them, maybe we can see them as this is is purification. This is the purification of awareness. I was talking a couple of weeks ago about how if you got a heart condition and the clinicians link you up to all these machines and then they give you what they call a stress test to see the condition of your heart and I was mentioning how we could think about this predicament of being under pressure that we find ourselves in as as like a stress test for our spiritual heart, for our awareness are we able to expand our awareness? Do we remember, do we have enough presence or attention to remember to take a deep breath in the body with the suggestion of creating space to receive all this rage, all this indignation? Receive it and bear with it and even speak to it. In my own practice, for years I've, I've had this exercise of talking to the pain when it arises please teach me what I need to learn I'm holding on to something here if we simply judge it, if we simply try to understand it conceptually if we reject it, well then we're back into the same position or maybe even worse off so when this intensity of negative emotion however it's manifesting surfaces, let's try, if we can, as well as we can, to receive it. I know it sounds difficult and perhaps even foolish to say we should try and welcome it, but even if we just utter the words welcome, maybe it brings into focus the degree to which we're resisting it. We don't have to necessarily feel like we're welcoming it or we like it, but just by saying welcome... It maybe brings into awareness the degree to which we are resisting it. We're saying, no, I don't want this. When in fact what's called for is a yes. I take full responsibility this this activity of heart that is taking place here and now. Yes to it. Receiving it rather than denying it. This evening for Puja we were chanting the Dhammachaka Sutta and in that discourse the Buddha's very first teaching he talks about what a dead end it is to be lost in the extremes of following agreeable experiences and disagreeable experiences. What a dead end that is and how counterproductive that is. And then he said the way out of it is this Majjima Patipata, the, the middle way. And the middle way, we could approach it as a concept, as a philosophy. How about if we approach it as a position of relationship to all this energy that we're experiencing? Kilesas are not just concepts. They're also energy. There's heat. There's movement. Hmm. And our relationship to that is one of either getting lost in it by indulging or by rejecting or there's a third option of seeing it. The disposition of watching, receiving. Yes, There's an inclination towards rage. Yes, there's an inclination towards sadness. Yes, there's an inclination towards fear. But is it possible to find a perspective from which we are not shaken? Is that a possibility? That's worth considering. For many people, it's just oscillating oscillating between hopefulness that the world is going to get better, we're going to really learn good times are just around the corner, everybody's going to cooperate and I'm going to really make an effort to make the most of this wonderful opportunity I have between that positive mind state and the negative one, of falling into despair and hopelessness. Oscillating between hopefulness and hopelessness without an appreciation of the middle way, that's, that's really regrettable. However, thankfully, the Buddha pointed out, this is not an obligation. It's not an obligation to always be oscillating between positive and negative emotions. If we even conceptually, to start off with, appreciate the possibility of the middle way, of awareness itself, Just knowing, grounded in the body, not just a conceptual kind of split off form of pseudo mindfulness, grounded here and now, alertness, receptivity, knowing negative emotion feels like this. The heat in the body feels like this. The sadness feels like this. No judgment with the understanding that if it is old, unreceived life, this situation means it's ready to be received. If we struggle with it, well then we end up having to do something. We either take medication or indulge in heedless speech, blaming, criticising, if I was in charge I'd run the country much better than this. Finding somebody to blame or just lashing out the people we live with at this time when, of lockdown and people are obliged to live with each other there's all sorts of forms of aversion and ill will and resentment and, and downright hatred that can be expressed and, and if we deny it well then it comes out in twisted ways you know. mm-hmm. like undermining ourselves if we deny ill will and resentment mm-hmm. because we have some conditioned judgment of it as being wrong and inappropriate and bad and something we shouldn't experience. We push it down into unawareness and there's a chance that it it manifests in some distorted way like in self-harming, undermining ourselves. Or maybe it manifests as passive aggression instead of just violent rejection and telling somebody what you think of them is just passively rejecting everything that they do. Or another more devious form of ill will, which is really helpful to get a handle on, and that is boredom. And a lot of people, when they feel bored, are under the impression that there's nothing happening. In fact, if we have the, if we've got the ability to really feel what's going on, ask the right questions in the right way, listen inwards, listen to the voices inwards, what's going on? Maybe we get a reading that what's going on is, I'm angry, there's nothing interesting happening. Now there's something happening, now I'm angry, I'm not bored anymore, I'm angry. That's something we can deal with. Mm. So, getting interested, whatever the whatever the state is, whether it's the the swamp of despair or the pain of loneliness or the fire of rage, and whatever the pain that we're experiencing under when we're under pressure, what do we need to do to get interested in the actuality, not just calling it a kilesa which is far too simple, And not just calling it an obstruction, not just judging it, not just saying it's wrong, of well, that's very initial. Is there a way where why we can get really interested in the reality of this experience? Now, even if we can just take this on in trust to start off with and start experimenting, it maybe will help us to Start letting go of some of the backlog of unlived life, of unreceived life. In the beginning, if there's a big backlog, and there can be, depending how long we've been denying it, in the beginning, there can be really challenging to deal with. A lot of fire, a lot of heat, a lot of pain. But if we're keeping moral precepts, <coughs> we're aspiring to progress on this path of purification, If we have confidence that suffering is not an obligation, liberation is possible, then maybe that trust and confidence will support us as we endure through the initial period of letting go of some of the most intense old, unreceived life. And as the level of pressure diminishes somewhat, there's uh, a... a new level of awareness, a new quality of presence. We start to catch ourselves sooner and maybe we start to see that we don't have to indulge or deny in this stuff, in these reactions. Maybe there is a possibility of catching it just as it's arising, see it. There's a choice. If we don't cling to this stuff, it's just energy. It's just movement. If we can just know it, Actually, we can grow strong from it. It doesn't have to threaten us. It doesn't have to overwhelm us. However, that does require a decent degree of of faith in this possibility. So I hope these thoughts will contribute to such faith. Don't believe that this oscillating between hopefulness and hopelessness is the only option. Don't believe that because there's intense negative emotions arising that right now we're engaged in generating something bad and that makes me wrong. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be that really this is the purification. When you put a system under pressure, the weaknesses in the system show up. The weaknesses in our awareness at this moment are showing up Do we have what it takes to own up to that? A good barometer for practice is not that there isn't any stuff surfacing, rather it's how long does it take us to own up to our stuff and say, yes, this is my heart energy manifesting and I accept full responsibility for it. So the second question this evening is particularly during these troubled times I have a question about self-doubt and how do I learn from this? How do I be kind to myself, ourselves whilst facing doubt, indecision? To enable us to be mindful are there any techniques we can utilise in our practice that gives us balance? To what can be a negative feeling? Well, certainly, this—the way the Christians framed the the, the inclination to learn—absolutely, that's the born out of faith, the, the recognition that this is not an indictment against who we are, just because we feel rage or loneliness or boredom or in this case doubt that's not an indictment against who we are that's just like if you stub your toe on a rock, if there's no pain that means there's something wrong you know, the pain has got a function the pain is a, a indicator saying pay attention here yeah. there's been some wounding, we need to look at this and, and so it is on the heart level that we're habitually clinging in ways that don't conduce with balance and don't conduce with well-being. The clinging actually is throwing us out of balance. And so when we have suffering, when we have pain, like the pain of doubt and indecision, pay attention here. That's that's what the message is. And it's difficult because we've (laughs) invested so much into having a good time we know how to enjoy great music or good food or going for walks in the countryside and lovely weather and, and we do tend to forget ourselves when we're having a good time and because we have that tendency to forget ourselves when we're having agreeable experiences then the other side of that is we forget ourselves when we're having disagreeable experiences. We lose ourselves. They go together. So We can't have one without the other. So the painful consequences of getting lost in doubt is an indication. This is where we need to be looking at where we're clinging. We're relating in a way that doesn't conduce with well-being, doesn't conduce with balance. So yes, there is something to learn. When it comes to actual exercises that we could engage that possibly help us get a more clear perspective on the pain and on the message, one exercise I would encourage is a visualization or an imagination of how would it be instead of thinking of ourselves as a thing sitting in the room try imagining ourselves as being the space of the room and here the space that we're imagining is a a metaphor for awareness itself Our identification with the content, the activity of awareness is what keeps us struggling. Our going for refuge to the Buddha is going for refuge to awareness itself. So as an intentional exercise, we could try imagining ourselves as being space, just by way of experiment. What's it like if I am the space of this room? What does it feel like just to ask ourselves that question, what does it feel like if I'm the space of this room rather than a thing in this room? The space doesn't mind if there's dust on the windowsills or if the room is too cold or the flowers haven't been changed on the shrine or somebody's been burning some unpleasantly strong incense. The space doesn't mind any of that and likewise awareness just knows we've probably heard that however how do we incline in the direction of letting go of the perception of ourselves as being a thing and being abiding as awareness how do we incline in that direction well i would suggest trying this exercise how How about being the space in which self-doubt is arising and ceasing? How about being the space in which loneliness is arising and ceasing? How about being the space of awareness in which sadness is arising and ceasing? Awareness doesn't mind at all what passes through it. Space doesn't mind what passes through it. And if we could perhaps experiment with this exercise, maybe we start to get a sense of where the real issue is, the real difficulty lies, and that is in this habit of habitually finding identity in the activity of awareness. Habitually finding identity in the thoughts. The thoughts and feelings, sensations and sights and smells and so on are all activity. It's all dust floating through empty space. So as an exercise in terms of coming to a new perspective on self-doubt and indecision, one way of addressing that could be is to use this faculty of imagination that we have uh, to let go of that false identity. We're not trying to think ourselves into it, we're using our imagination, which is, that's a different faculty. It might work and it might not work and that brings us to another possible exercise not just a nice option but from the Buddhist perspective an absolutely essential quality to cultivate and that is patient endurance. Now we've all heard those words so often, we think oh that's nothing new, that's that's not going to make any difference. Well if it wouldn't make any difference, the Buddha wouldn't have referred to it as the ultimate purifier. Paramang tapo titika is the expression the Buddha used. Patient endurance is the ultimate, well, the literal translation is ascetic practice, but ascetic practices, the purpose that one takes on ascetic practices for is is for purification. Mm. Patient endurance is the ultimate purifier. We need... Patient use. Because sometimes whatever techniques we might have developed, whatever understandings we might have cultivated, whatever abilities we might have, sometimes they all fail. And we're faced with the perception of, I can't stand this anymore. I can't take this anymore. Well, one of the faculties that helps prevent Awareness from collapsing around that thought, around that impression, and our being convinced that it's true, one of the skills that's worth developing is this quality of patient endurance. Um, of course, uh, as hopefully we all know, it's very different from better endurance. It's not gritting our teeth and I will we'll put up with this, sense. that we can be uh, hurting ourselves if we're doing that. But patient endurance. Uh, a willingness to bear with something that feels unbearable. I talked before about long distance flying. When I used to fly to Thailand, that's only halfway to New Zealand and you know, there's still another 12 or more hours before you get to New Zealand and being cooped up with long legs and in these rather unpleasant situations. One practice that you can employ is this patient endurance. I really don't want to be here. However, all true spiritual teachers would point out that patient endurance is essential. So I'm going to be patient with this. This is the perfect situation to be in, to be patient. We can't develop patient endurance when we're having a good time. That's obvious. And yet, the Buddha said we all need patient endurance. So guess what? When we're in an intolerable situation, that's it, that's perfect, that is the situation in which we can develop patient endurance. Now, you might say, well, that's just putting a spin on it. Well, it might be a bit of a spin, but it's a one that conduces with cultivating real strength, potentially. So the next question, which says, it seems like most of us view dukkha as a personal attribute, brackets, my dukkha, when in fact the teachings talk about dukkha as something that just exists, like light. Would you please say something about this? Well, this dukkha is one of those three myth-dispelling insights that the Buddha had I think it was last week I spoke about the myth dispelling insight of anicca, the idea that somehow life is stable and predictable, and and that we're safe by identifying with things, with this body, with thoughts, with feelings. That there's some security can come from that. The Buddha's insight into anicca pointed out that there is no security, there is no stability by clinging or identifying with any condition. It's all unstable. He also pointed out the second one, which is that that all conditions are dukkha. Now, this questioner says that people often think about dukkha as my dukkha, my personal, uh, personal attribute, and that's perhaps because of the way the word is translated as suffering. Suffering is a pretty... Um, uh, Inadequate translation of the word dukkha. Most English words would be an inadequate translation. I think unsatisfactoriness is probably the closest I can imagine. What it's pointing to is that aspect of conditioned existence that means if we cling to anything, we're going to feel disappointed. This person here talks about it as as something that just exists like light. I tend to think of it as like a flavour, like sour. If you've got a lemon and you've got taste buds and you bite into a lemon, guess what? You experience sour. That's the nature of lemons. The nature of all conditioned existence is that if you cling to anything, you experience this quality. It's not sour. It's dukkha it's unsatisfactory. Anything we cling to is going to lead us to disappointment. Now, that's not a problem with things. That's not a problem with life. The fact that the lemon is sour is not a problem for the lemon. It's not a problem for reality. It's not a problem at all. However, we do hurt if we don't understand this fact. If we're always biting into lemons, life could become pretty unpleasant. Uh, If we're always clinging to conditioned existence, to thoughts, feelings, sensations, ideas, emotions, we're clinging to conditioned existence, then we do have the perception of I am suffering. And in fact, even this condition of I that we refer to, this mental formation of selfhood, the sense of I, what is it in reality I was talking before about getting interested in the actuality of of these movements of mind these, like anger and loneliness and sadness and what is the actuality of self the assumption that it 's somehow permanent Which is the permanent bit of self? The really happy one or the one who's got it together or the disappointed one or the frightened one or the the competent one or the incompetent one or uh, the peaceful one or the agitated one? They all feel like me. Which is the real me? What about the one that was five years old or 15 years old or 25 or 55 or 75? It all feels like me. It does feel like me. But what is it really? The assumption is that there's a solid, substantial me there. If we don't inspect that assumption, then guess what? We feel, feel the experience, the consequence of that, which is dissatisfaction. Well, that's not a problem with the perception of me. It's not a problem with the self-structure. That habitual mental formation that we call self is what it is. Just the same as a rainbow is what it is. It's a It's an apparent reality, the refraction of light through the particles of water produces this red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet perception. Mm. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet is just what it is. However, if we go running to it and want to hug this beautiful rainbow and then it disappears and then we get upset (laughs) because the rainbow wasn't what we thought it was, well... This is something about uh, our relationship with reality, I would think. Actually, it's the same with uh, the sense of self, me, even this perception of my pain, my opinions, my views, my rights. All of that is a symptom of our clinging to this perception of self, whereas from the, the perspective of the Buddha's insight, this sense of self, this also is dukkha. It's a compounded thing, it's a, um, it's a conditioned dynamic from the Buddha's perspective of understanding that of no clinging, then there's no problem. And so there's no personal suffering. That doesn't mean to say dukkha disappears. It's just to say the Buddha wasn't afflicted with dukkha. It's tempting when conditions are agreeable. Like I was saying earlier, nice spring weather and bird song and sunny days and daffodils and Can find it thoroughly agreeable and forget the Buddha's teachings that if we cling to this then we're going to experience the consequences which may not be immediately obvious at the time however the habit of clinging to that which is beautiful means that we cling to that which is not beautiful and it's something we have to basically retrain our attention We need to educate, re-educate ourselves. Now, if we had been taught early on in life by those who had the wisdom to understand that clinging is the cause of all suffering, that nothing, no sight, no sound, no smell, nothing, no experience is worth clinging to, nothing at all. If we'd been taught that from an early stage of life, Maybe we would be in a position where we weren't making this fundamental, fundamental mistake over and over again. However, that's not the case. We were taught the opposite. We were, we were educated. We were inducted. We, were, we, were, we had this myth instilled in our consciousness that certain things are worth clinging to. Certain things are ultimately valuable. The Buddha said, there is no thing that's ultimately valuable. There are wholesome conditions which are worth cultivating for sure. Those wholesome conditions uh, lead to the understanding, lead to the wisdom, lead to the clear seeing, lead, potentially lead to the perspective, which means there's no clinging to anything. And the result of that is contentment. However we do get lost over and over again, and so we need to be reminded of these teachings over and over again. Mm-hmm. I remember many years ago now when I was a very junior monk living in Thailand. I was spend, spending some time in a monastery in Bangkok uh, for some reason uh, to get my teeth done or my visa or for some reason. And On this occasion, there was a group of uh, teachers from America came to visit to pay their respects to the abbot of the monastery. Uh, Pratanyana Sangmaun was the abbot of Wat worn where I was staying. And on the Wednesday night, I think it was, there was a, a regular teaching where the abbot would give a talk in English. And so we were all gathered there outside uh, his accommodation there, and and uh, listening to his talk. And these American uh, Dhamma teachers were all lined up, and Ramdas was there. Some of you all know Ramdas. somebody who. I personally feel very indebted to, source of great inspiration, and he was part of this tour along with Jack Cornfield, and I'm not sure who else was there. Now, most of the people were sitting on chairs, and what was, a, in that situation, uh, a composed manner, except for Ramdas, who was sitting on the floor, just a, a few feet in front of the abbot, and from time to time, uh, he would, he would. Uh, prostrate himself forward and let out uh, some loud sadhu, 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 and which I, I guess is um, probably an expression of, of appreciation uh, uh, understood in the Indian tradition, but it was rather out of context in and, and that situation. And, but he kept doing it until the, I remember the abbot interrupted his talk and, and looked down at him sitting there on the floor, and he, he said something to the effect of, rather you need to know that even Sukha is dukkha, and which I guess Ram Dass let out another sadhu in response to that. We forget ourselves when it's sukha. We get lost in the happiness, we get lost in the good feelings. And then when situations change and we're having to deal with the painful feelings like being locked up in a house with people we perhaps don't want to be with, we can't go outside even though it's sunny springtime, and springtime, we're disappointed we're frustrated, we've got doubts. That's when we see the consequence of our habits of clinging. It's a message. and The Buddha's teachings on cultivating the insight that gets this message, that's what this teaching is about. Yes, there's a lot about this path of practice that brings joy and happiness and and well-being. However, a lot of that joy and happiness and well-being serves us best when it strengthens us and prepares us for those things in life that are really disagreeable. The samadhi aspect of meditation, the development of tranquility and stillness and calm can be very agreeable. The Vipassana teachings are about investigation particularly into dukkha, into that which is disagreeable or unsatisfactory and it doesn't always accord with our preferences when Ajin Chah was visiting this country again this was many years ago and maybe even 40 years ago and he visited a a Tibetan Buddhist centre up here in the north of England and he'd given a talk and at some stage somebody asked if he would deliver a teaching on Vipassana I think this was a, a time when the West was becoming familiar with these different terms, samatha and vipassana and anapanasati. And so somebody asked Ajahn Chah, would you give us a teaching on vipassana? And so Ajahn Chah's reply was, he said, he said, turn up in the morning, everybody bring a flower with them. And you might have seen this photograph of Ajahn Chah standing at the, the front on the doorsteps of this this Buddhist institute, and he's holding up, I think it's like a tree tulip, he's got a big smile on his face, and his teaching was that if you want to understand Vipassana, you hold up this flower and you watch as it withers and dies. That's Vipassana. In other words, everything that arises ceases. The understanding that frees us from dukkha that frees us from suffering comes when we, instead of turning away from that which is disagreeable we turn towards it and look at it with interest so instead of holding to the assumption that this suffering is mine we get interested in the actuality what is this perception of my suffering asking maybe the question who is suffering? who am I? Who was asking this question? At the same time with a feeling awareness, not just up in our heads trying to figure it out by thinking, bringing awareness into the body and feeling our feet on the ground, head upright, our chest open, a here and now quality of awareness. What is this I that I feel myself to be with all my opinions and my views and my history and my problems and my suffering? Listen to ourselves thinking about these things and then feel into them, investigate into them. Trusting in, in a feeling investigation, not merely an intellectual analysis. Yes, the intellectual analysis has got its place. That's the level of pariyati, the, the study aspect of practice. But pati is where we apply the teachings. Let the mind go quiet And then when something arises like perhaps a painful memory, perhaps the the smell of that unreceived life that we've pushed down into the basement starts to emerge into our awareness and, and we start to feel afraid. Instead of just believing in that fear, instead of allowing ourselves to be intimidated with the thought of being overwhelmed by that fear, by the consequence of having pushed that stuff into unawareness. We can maybe just restrain that assumption that this really is who and what I am and get interested in it. Do I have to be defined by some old memory that happened many years ago? Or is there a way of getting a perception, a perspective of space around it Can we cultivate the awareness? Yes, the exercise of concentrating on the breath can bring about a steadiness of attention. And if we do it correctly, it can also uh, help bring about an expanded sense of tranquility and and maybe give us the the ability to, to welcome things into awareness. But the work is not just about having an enjoyable mental state. The work is having the ability to endure the unendurable for as long as it takes. We can make the effort to be patient in this moment and then maybe we discover that from that patient endurance and that investigation comes an increased sense of aliveness. Previously, so much of our attention was drained by being lost in memories of the past and fantasies of the future. We lose our aliveness because we're not really with what's happening in this moment. Even when what's happening in this moment is difficult, it can lead to a sense of increased aliveness. And with that increased capacity to receive ourselves, maybe we find that there's also a new level of discernment, a new level of intelligence and compassion. We often feel like, "I I want to develop wisdom and compassion, and so we read about wisdom and compassion and we, we strive to understand the teachings on wisdom and compassion. How about if we still the mind, expand awareness, meet ourselves where we're at without judgment and then let go of ourselves and in that increased, purified, open-hearted state we find that maybe that perspective, that clarity, that kindness that we're looking for already exists. So the last question this evening says, is it harder to stay awake when conditions are favourable? Certainly I would say that the person asking this question has a very decent degree of honesty to them, and to admit that we tend to go to sleep when things are agreeable is not easy to admit, but it's true. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.